visiting with us, I'll add my welcome to Todd's welcome, and you may be wondering, man, does that cat wear a suit and tie every week? And um, I don't, actually, uh, it's, and it's, it's Easter Sunday, and I got to tell you, so, you know, so, so you wear that for Jesus, and I would say, I probably should be, but I'm not actually wearing it for Jesus. I don't think he cares what I wear, but my grandmother does, all right? And now she's gone to be with the Lord, and um, I feel a little bad about, I think when she passed away, she figured, because I was a pastor, that I preached in a suit and tie every week, and, um, and I didn't. But she would only ever ask me on Easter Sunday what I wore. So I'd wear it for her so I wouldn't have to lie to my grandmother, because that's bad. You don't want to do that. A lot of bad things, but don't lie to your grandmother. So it is in honor of my meemaw on Easter that I wear a suit and a tie, and I'm glad to do it, and I'm glad to see you this morning. If you've got your Bibles or a smartphone or an iPad or some kind of device, here's where I want you to find. I want you to find Revelation chapter 1. It's the last book of the New Testament, actually last book of the Bible, first page of the last book. And so as far as I can tell, there are a handful of significant events that occur in the Bible on a Sunday. You have what I would call Creation Sunday. Genesis chapter 1 tells us about the creation of the world on the first day. I take that to be a Sunday, and you have let there be light. It's a big day. You have Resurrection Sunday. It's Easter morning. This is the day we enter into the historical celebration of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead. Resurrection Sunday. That's why we're here this morning. You also have Creation Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. You have what I would call Revelation Sunday. And this is recorded in Revelation chapter 1. And so this is what I want to do this morning, all right? See, see if you can follow me. I want to celebrate the hope of Easter morning, Resurrection Sunday, through the lens of Revelation Sunday that John records here in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to look at Resurrection Sunday through the lens of Revelation Sunday here in Revelation chapter 1. You might not know about me, but I um, am the oldest of five siblings and uh, grew up, and, and I can tell you, Easter morning uh, was absolutely, every morning, but particularly Easter morning was total mayhem at my house, Okay. Uh, growing up. I've told this story, it's been a while, uh, but it is one of my most memorable Easter mornings. And I'm probably about 13 or 14 years old, and my mom, uh, so single mom, five kids, the house is absolutely crazy. There's me, and then three sisters, and then a little brother. And this is the 1980s, let's say 1984, somewhere around there. And the number one song, uh, album in the world in 1984 was Michael Jackson's Thriller album, okay? I'm going to bring all this together. 
So I had three sisters in the middle of two brothers. And these three sisters and my mom, they're all women, as it turns out. And it's, a, it's crazy. Everybody's getting ready, and they all got their Easter dresses on. And my littlest sister, Molly's so cute. It's just the cutest thing you've ever seen. And she had this cute Easter dress on. And um, the thing that came with her Easter dress were these white gloves that came w- with the Easter dress to wear to church. Well, somewhere along the way, while the, all, the, all the gals are somewhere getting ready, they're getting their hair curled or, or whatever they're doing, my brother finds these white gloves. And if you weren't around in 1984, let me tell you a couple of things that were happening. One, people wore parachute pants, and they wore gloves with the fingers cut out of them, but on only one hand. So at some point, my brother found the gloves and a pair of scissors and finds a pair of sunglasses and is walking around dancing to beat it on Sunday. And uh, beat it is what happened to my brother. (laughs) I never heard people cry so much in my whole life. Uh, so you might have had some drama around your house this morning. I, I don't know. But, but it's fitting for us. Let me read just a, just a few verses of that first resurrection morning. If you were out at the uh, sunrise service this morning, Chad read these to us. But just listen to what happened. This is, the, this is sort of the drama on the first resurrection morning, the way John records it. He says, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, you just got to know right there real quick, she's going to the tomb. She's going to pay her respects to her dead friend. She wasn't going to the tomb because she thought she was going to see the resurrected Jesus, okay? This is, they're in mourning. They're crying, and even though Jesus had told them this would happen, they, it was something that did not register to them until they saw it for themselves. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, just how John talks about himself. And she said to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going together toward the tomb, and both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb. That's so funny, isn't it, that John would say, and by the way, I outran him, I won. Just love that. Just thinking, man, these people are going to read this forever. And I beat him. And when they reached the tomb and stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following, and he went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed For as yet they did not understand the Scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples 
went back to their homes. So he's risen and the tomb's been inspected and there's messengers that are going to appear and the gospel's going to be announced. And on some, in some way, so this third day that Jesus talks about, it's actually, it's the first day and the world has changed. The resurrection has, you can think of it, it has broken into history and death has been dealt a fatal blow. All of a sudden, death now, for the very first time since it very first struck, death was not able to hold Jesus. That's what Jesus will say, it's finished. And it's just begun. He's risen. And then the church will say, back, this is what we do. He's risen. He's risen indeed. That's why we do that. Well, since that day, three things have happened. Since that day of John 20, the the resurrection Sunday. First, this group of people that followed Jesus in his life, these disciples and then the uh, you know, we think of the 12 disciples, but there were really, beyond that, there were a lot of disciples that were following Jesus. They followed him in his life when he was on earth and performed miracles and taught the things of God, and no one had ever done those things before. And so these friends, Jesus' friends who had followed him in his life, they began to follow him in his resurrection. That they became known to the world as Christians. They're the people who followed the resurrected Jesus with full devotion. Now listen, they, they were not merely following the memory of a dead teacher. All right? That they weren't merely devoted to the teachings of this dead leader. They were people who were devoted to a man who was God. And he died the death that all humanity deserved. But death, it didn't win. And and Jesus is raised to new life. He doesn't remain dead. He's alive. And because he's alive, they followed him. They gave their lives to him. They were devoted to him. And because he lives, they sought to find meaning in life that only he can give. That's the first thing that happened. The the second thing that happened since that day is that these followers of Jesus, they began the practice of meeting on the first day of the week, on Sunday. And in, in the first century, really in all of history, no group had ever met on the first day of the week. You always met on the last day of the week. It was a symbol of how life was oriented. You worked all week long, you began your work, your week, you worked hard, you worked six days, you come to the last day of the week, you would assemble, you would worship your God, whoever he was, and you hoped that that worship would make up for all your shortcomings of the week before. You come to the end of the week, and you lay it all out, this is the best I had, I, I came, this is all I've got, and you hope that it is enough, but your life was essentially up to you. You'd bring at the end of the week your sacrifices, offer them hope it was enough. And Christians, they viewed it differently. 
They knew that the reason that Jesus, so the eternal Son of God, entered into humanity was to do what we are unable to do for ourselves. And they believed that the only thing that could satisfy the perfect requirements of a holy God, the only thing, it was accomplished by Jesus. He was the perfect sacrifice. So what they do is they began their week early on Sunday morning by resting in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, the one who was alive and seated at the right hand of God, the Father. And so they would meet and they would pray and they would sing songs, and they would read God's Word, and they would be encouraged by one another, and they would meet each other's needs. And that's how they began their week. Well, the third thing that happened, and it is that these followers, they began to spread this good news of the resurrection of, the Jesus, uh, of Jesus. So, the death is not the final destiny for man. This was the good news. See, resurrection of Jesus promised eternal life, that the curse of sin and the curse of the brokenness in the world, that is no longer final. Jesus has taken it into himself. He's taken all the sin and all the brokenness and all the shame and all that stuff you can't get out of your conscience. He took all that to himself. And he endured it on a cross. He endured it by being forsaken by God so that we could be made right with God. And the good news of the resurrection meant that this world, these things, this is not the last chapter. And that Jesus was going to come back and he was going to rule and reign and there would be peace forever. In fact, he said he'd make all things new. Wipe away every tear and every sorrow. And that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. We'd be with God forever. And so it brings me back to the book of Revelation. The Revelation, that's how you say it. It's God's word to the church. To the Churches, specifically and generally, to the men and the women and the children who gather on Sunday mornings to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and the kindle of the longing for his return. It is God's word to those who worship him through his son Jesus. It's God's word to those that love him and long to know him more. It's God's word to those who endure the pain and the hardship and the brokenness in this world. Those who eagerly await the return of Jesus, the true king of all creation. See, it's God's word, and it's God's word that is a promise. The revelation is God pulling back the curtain and revealing to us a glimpse of the next chapter. So, let me just say, as we, as we get into this this morning, Easter, it's not this one-off event in our life. And, and Believe it or not, there is nothing magical about coming to an Easter service. In fact, we're going to do what we do here every Sunday morning. We're gathered to hear God's Word. We're going to read God's Word. We're going to 
Remember that the sum total of our lives, no matter how much good we've done, we could never reach the holiness of God. We've come to worship Jesus because He's our only hope. Now listen to these words in Revelation chapter 1. This is what John writes. It says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, And has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds or with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You you find out really that the book is a letter. John's writing it to the churches. And and what the letter is about, he tells us right there in verse 1, it's the unveiling of Jesus, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what revelation means. It means unveiling. The opening words tell us what the book is. It is this revelation. The term is apocalypsis. It means the uncovering of something that has been hidden. The book unveils Jesus. It reveals him, telling us how things really are. The book shows us cataclysmic events at end times when good will finally triumph over evil. And as we witness these events leading up to Christ's return, the mental picture of Jesus becomes clear. This is why John writes it. He writing about the things that will take place soon, he says. So both the Old and the New Testaments are filled with promises of the second coming of Christ. In fact, there are over 1,800 references to it. And of the 260 chapters in the entire New Testament, there are 318 references. More than one a chapter. For every prophecy on the first coming of Christ, there are eight prophecies on the second coming of Christ. And so when Revelation says there in verse 1 that it'll take place soon and that it's returned there in verse 3, it is near These terms that they talk about Christ's coming as impending, not immediate, but it's impending. What it means is that we're to reflect on the suddenness 
that will happen when Christ returns. The fulfillment of the future events could begin at any moment. It's as if Christ, he stands at the door of our world ready to enter at any moment. And so we, we shouldn't expect the return of Jesus at any particular time, but rather be ready for his return anytime, no matter when it occurs. That's the point. Well, if you were to go through the whole letter of the Revelation, what would you expect? Well, you would expect Jesus, and you would expect to understand what's coming. And verse 3 tells us there's a blessing if you read it. Doesn't mean we'll understand everything, although you can understand much about this book. It's not off limits. And then we find out who wrote the letter. Well, John writes it. When we met John the very first time in the Scriptures, he's young. He and his brother James, they're fishermen. We know that his father's name was Zebedee. Jesus calls these two brothers the sons of thunder. Jesus had 12 disciples. John was one of the closest. You remember as we read just a minute ago, he, he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. In all the intimate moments of Jesus' life, John is there. John's the only disciple that was at the cross, and he was there comforting Jesus' mother. In Acts chapter 12, you find out that his brother James will be the first of the 12 disciples that will be murdered for his faith in Jesus. He'll be martyred. By the time John writes this, he's in his 80s or his 90s. All the other disciples have been martyred. His brother was the first. John will be the last. He wrote the Gospel of John, the author of maybe the most familiar and famous phrase in all of literature, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. In AD 90, the the Roman emperor was a man named Domitian. Domitian's threatened by John. The, the story goes that he wanted to kill him, and so he boiled him alive in a vat. The problem is he didn't die. And it freaked Domitian out. And so what he did is he had him exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and that's where he is when he writes this letter. So who's the book written to? Well, it's written to the churches, generally, specifically written to us. Who's the letter from? You find out in verse 4, it's from the Father. It's from the Spirit. And it's from the Son. Look again at verse 5. Notice, verse 5 is the Easter identity of Jesus. Look at what it says. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. This means the cross. The firstborn of the dead. This is the resurrection. And the ruler of the kings on earth. His ascension to the right hand of the Father where he awaits his return. Now, here's what I want you to notice real quick. John's dedication. And in this dedication, we're going to see that Jesus reverses the history of those who believe. Your history gets rewritten. Your, your history gets reversed. You, you now are from the future 
to come as a believer in Christ. Look at what he says, the end of verse 5. To him, this is to Jesus, who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And he'll go on. But look, look at what he says, this dedication. Jesus, the one who loves us. It is a beautiful title for Jesus. Who is he? It's the one who loves us. It's a secure in God's love. And it's not based on, on their present circumstances, which may be very difficult. But it's based on the ultimate demonstration of love at the cross. This is worth praising Jesus about. Paul put it like this in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're thinking, look, I'm a big fraud. I came in here this morning, Easter, looking around. I might be dressed up nice on the outside, but if you knew me, I am a fraud. Maybe that's what you're thinking. See, I don't belong here. Worried somebody might find out about you. Let me tell you, I, we already did. You're broken and you're a sinner. And guess what? So am I. And so is the person sitting to your right and to your left. And yet that doesn't change who Jesus is for you. The one who loves you. He died for you, not when you, not on your best day. Died for you on your worst day. And that may even be a day you haven't had yet in your life. The work of Jesus on the cross for us is God's ultimate proof of his love for you. He might give you additional proof, but he can't give you any greater proof. Well, he calls him the one who loves us. He also calls him at there at the end of verse 5, the one who freed us, he says. So see, it's what happened when Jesus loved us at the cross. It, it, he, he washes us, he cleanses us from the deep stain of sin in our life so that we are really, truly clean before him. See, if we understand our own deep sinfulness, the reality is this seems too good to be true. I mean, if we're really in touch with that, if, it, if we really know the depth of our sinfulness, this seems to be something that's too good to be true, that we could stand clean before God, clean from the deepest of stains. one who loves us, who frees us. Verse 6, he made us. Verse 7 tells us he's coming again. Notice it says, with the clouds. I even misread it earlier on accident. It's not in the clouds. It's with the clouds. 
all the Bible scholars point out is that he's saying he's not coming in the clouds. It's not this incoming. He, it's not like, you know, he has to push the clouds away. He's not coming on the clouds and he's not like writing them. He's bringing the clouds with him. And so we're not talking about the moisture in the atmosphere. What we're talking about, of course, is the Shekinah glory of God. And he is going to be bringing the presence of God back to heal the world of everything that is wrong with it. He's bringing back the presence of God, the glory of God, back to rid all the evil and all the suffering and every eye will see him. He will not be hidden to anyone. Well, this little bit here closes in verse 8. And the idea behind these titles, this Alpha and the Omega, is that he's before all things and he will remain beyond all things. Alpha is the first letter of the ancient Greek alphabet. Omega was the last. Jesus essentially said, I'm A to Z. I'm beginning and the end. And so if Jesus is both the beginning and the end, then he has authority over everything in between. And this means that Jesus has a plan for history and that he directs the path of human events towards his designed fulfillment. And so our lives are not given over to blind fate or random meaninglessness. We're not on some endless cycle with no resolution. Instead, Jesus Christ, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, he directs all of human history and even our individual lives. And it's so important that this Alpha and Omega, Jesus says it again. The next time he says it, he says it, I'm the first and the last Verse 18. And, and when he says that, he's saying it because there's nothing to fear. And the scene begins when, when John turns around and he sees him. Look at verse 12 with me. John says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I see I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. And notice all this language. This is the language that the Old Testament used to talk about God. I turned and I saw Jesus, and this is what I saw in verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze were fined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters and in his right hand he held seven stars and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like a shining sun in full strength and he's groping at language to talk about what he sees and the scene is so emotional to me when I step back and think about it. See, the last time John had seen Jesus, he was watching him ascend 
in the heaven. And over the years, I'm sure John longed to see him again with all that he knows now and all that he didn't know then and he couldn't wait. So he's alone on an island and he's exiled from humanity. And John had seen more death and more suffering than most people would end up seeing in 10 lifetimes. All of his friends are dead. All of them. They've all gone to be with the Lord. There's no lonelier person on planet Earth in A.D. 95 than John. And all of a sudden, he hears the voice. It was more awesome than he could have anticipated. And what's more, John speaks directly, and Jesus is going to speak directly into the death and the suffering we all experience. Look at what happens in verse 17. So when I saw him, I heard his voice, and I turned to see who was there, and I was overwhelmed. And so when I saw him, he says, I fell at his feet as though I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death in Hades. And he goes on to say, so write all these things down. See, the resurrection, it reverses the history for you and for me. What we all know for certain that something's wrong, right? Do you know something's, I mean, do you know, are you aware there's something wrong? I remember when Catherine, my youngest daughter, she was about five years old, and we were watching this, it was like a documentary, I think, something like that, African Cats is what it was called, and it was narrated by Samuel L. Jackson and uh, uh, Patrick Stewart, or Director Fury and Jean-Luc Picard, all right? And it's centered, it's this documentary, they're looking at two cat families, these lion families, and, and, and how these families are teaching their cubs the way of the, of the wild, and I'll never forget, I mean, this is like seared in my head. This is not like a winning dad moment, all right? She just sat and cried through the whole thing because at one point, the mother cheetah loses two of her five cubs to hyenas watching, you know, you're feeling this, I don't know how they did it, but you, you're feeling the emotional pain of a mother crying out having lost two cubs. And all of a sudden, the narrator says, and they're never coming back. <laughs> like, what the heck? Then there's a scene where the lion cub, who's a teenager, realizes that the mother lion has aged and has left the pride and has gone out to die in a quiet place. And my daughter is five. But at that moment, she'd be able to tell you, something's wrong with this world. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity in our hearts. He has put eternity in her heart, and you have it, and I have it. Part of my daughter's tears are for these poor cubs, and 
Part of it was because she could feel how fragile life is. I felt it. I've felt it a hundred times since then. Something's wrong. And the Bible makes no mistake about it. Death is our enemy. And the truth is that we have no hope on our own. We know something's wrong. We feel its reality. We've all played out the what-if scenarios that death creates in our lives and the lives of our loved ones. That's what Jesus says. I have the keys now. Because God hates death. Let me tell you something. He hates it because it's the result of sin. It came through one man to all men, and man is powerless over death. And we need more than a superhero with a cape. We need a savior. We need someone who has victory over death, the power to defeat even death itself. And Jesus has that power. He's alive. He rose. He got up out of the grave. He got up. And he has made the way for you to conquer death. He's made the way for you to be alive. And I mean really alive. Fear not, he says. I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. I won. And I now have the keys. Way back in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 12 gives us this glimpse. He he tells us something kind of surprising in Daniel chapter 12. He says this. He says, at the end of history, everybody's going to be resurrected. It's always been a surprise to me. I've always thought that the good will be, you know, those that are in Christ, those that are believers, those that are righteous, they'll be resurrected. Everybody else will just stay dead as they are. But that's not how the Bible tells us that it's going to be. Actually, everybody gets resurrected. And he says, you get resurrected to everlasting life or everlasting condemnation. In other words, everyone, everyone is going to live forever. You'll live forever with God, or you'll live forever apart from Him. And Easter is the hope that proclaims our opportunity to live forever in the presence of God, and the Bible calls that eternal life, and you can't earn it, and you can't buy it. It is God's gift to you if you are willing to accept it. Very simply, the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. John says in his letter, 1 John 4, tells us what God's love looks like. He loved us when we didn't love him. We were dying, so he sent his son to rescue us. And the way Jesus rescues us is by dying in our place so that we can live with him. And the sacrifice cost Jesus his life. He died on a cross, and if that was all that Jesus had done, he'd be a hero, a man above all men. He'd be a man to celebrate and even commemorate. But if all he did was die for us, then he would have only been a man. Still dead, still lying in a grave. 
and we'd still be in our hopeless condition. But Jesus did more than die. He rose from the dead. He resurrected. Means he's not merely a hero. He is our Savior. He's our victory. He's our life. He took our sin to the cross and then to the grave, and he defeated it. And after he defeated it, he rose from the dead in victory, rose with a new body, a body that will live forever, incorruptible, immortal, perfect, glorious, created for eternity in the presence of God, and he offers us the very same resurrected power. That's the gift of God. Can't be earned, only received. Have you received it? And how you receive it is that you say, God, by faith, I believe. Your son died for my sin. And three days later, he got up out of the grave, having defeated death. And I'm following him. He's my only hope. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, (laughs) we celebrate this morning, really like we do every Sunday morning, but with with, a, with an exclamation point this morning, the resurrection of your son, Jesus. And what's amazing is that on the creation Sunday, you knew about the resurrection Sunday already. And Father, that you loved us, so you sent your son for us and that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life life forever in your presence you you came for us Father I pray this morning there wouldn't be one person walk out of here and not believe that wouldn't be one person this morning walk out of here and not give their life away to that Father, you are our only hope. That's what we've come to declare today. And and that hope is the gift of your son, Jesus, who died, was buried, and rose again, defeating death. So that our future and our eternity has been forever changed. So, Father, do those things in us, what only you can do. And help us to worship you well in the name of your son, Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen.